welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Russia's attack on Ukraine and the implications of this war on the Middle East, from the reluctance of U.S. allies in the region to condemn Russia's invasion, to the question of nuclear negotiations with Iran and the possibility of a nuclear agreement. This panel was hosted by the George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies, and I moderated the panel with experts Alex Vatankha, Sina Azodi, and Nicole Grayevsky. Okay, good afternoon. Um, my name is Mona Atea. I'm the director of the Institute for Middle East Studies here at the George Washington University. And it's a great pleasure um, to welcome you to the implications of the conflict in Ukraine on the Middle East security complex. Um, our panel today is taking place under the Middle East Policy Forum, which was founded by Ambassador Skip Ganim with the generous support of ExxonMobil. Um, before we start today's program, I'd like to sh- thank Rachel Schaefer, uh, who is the Middle East Policy Forum assistant for all her work to bring us together today. And um, I'd like to begin by saying we we have a panel on the implications of the conflict in Ukraine on the Middle East security complex. It's going to be moderated by Nagar Mortazavi, who's a columnist for The Independent and a host of the Iran podcast. She's been working in Washington, D.C. as a journalist and a political analyst covering Iranian affairs for over a decade. And we're going to be joined by three distinguished guests. Um, The first is Alex Vatanka, who's the director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute. He specializes in Middle Eastern regional security affairs with a focus on Iran. Uh, He's also a senior fellow in the Middle East studies at um, the U.S. Air Force Special Operations School and the author of two books, The Battle of the Alatoyas in Iran and Iran and Pakistan Security Diplomacy and American Influence. He is Um, presently working on his third book, Iran's Arab Strategy, Defending the Homeland or Exporting Khomeiniism. We are also joined by Sina Ozadi, who's a visiting scholar here at the GW Institute for Middle East Studies and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's also a PhD candidate in international affairs whose research covers international security, nuclear non-proliferation, U.S.-Iranian relations, and um, he's a frequent commentator on both English and Persian-speaking media. He's also um, an alumni of the Elliott School with a BA and MA in international affairs. Um, finally, we are joined by Nicole Grayevsky, who's a pre-doctoral research fellow at Harvard's Belford Center International Security Program and also a doctoral candidate in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford, where her dissertation examines Russian and Iranian approaches to international order and security. Her research interests include military interventions, international law, Eurasia, Russian-Iran relations, and the foreign policies of Russia, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. She has an M in Russian and Eastern European Studies from Oxford and a BA in International Affairs and Security Policy and Middle East Studies, also from the George Washington University's Elliott School. We are um, so delighted to be joined by two alumni. And um, I will pass the floor now to Nagar, who will be um, moderating, moderating today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mona and Rachel and the George Washington University's Middle East Center for hosting this important and timely event. I'm honored and delighted to be here with our expert uh, panel as Mona introduced them all. Uh, each of them have expertise in various areas that are related to, uh, to today's conversation. Uh, I'll just make a very short intro um, on how we're going to go with this event. We have about an hour, so I'll have a conversation with our panel for the first uh, 45 minutes or so of the panel. But I encourage our audience to post questions and comments in the 
chat box um, below your Zoom link, and I'll take questions from the audience um, at the end. We're going to talk about Russia's invasion on Ukraine, the implications of this war on the Middle East, various countries uh, in the region, Iran, as well as U.S. allies, uh, Arab countries of the Persian Gulf, and as well as Israel, the reluctance of uh, some of these countries to condemn Russia's attack on Ukraine and sort of join the efforts, the global efforts against um, Russia and also some of the double standards when it comes to condemning uh, this kind of aggression um, from from the Western world as opposed to when it happens, say, from Russia than when it happens from uh, certain U.S. allies and also specifically talk about this war's impact on uh, nuclear negotiations with Iran. So with that, um, let me first start with Nicole. Nicole, you um, have studied and researched Russia-Iran relations as well as Ukraine-Iran relations. And uh, this war has created a very interesting triangle. Obviously, Russia is a, is an ally, has been an ally of Iran for years. At the same time, uh, we've seen uh, sort of a not too strong but reluctant uh, condemnation of Iran for this invasion on Ukraine. Basically, the Islamic Republic not really coming out strong in supporting Russia's attack on Ukraine. How do you see this war and this invasion impacting uh, Russia-Iran relations, for that matter, and then also Ukraine-Iran relations in the sort of triangle that's been created? Um, Thank you for your question, and uh, thank you to the Middle East Policy Forum for hosting this important event. Um, In terms of the Russia-Iran relationship, it hasn't been a pretty easy or smooth relationship historically. There's been um, vacillations where periods of confrontation have really undermined the development of the relationship. But over the past decade or so, you've seen a strengthening of ties. And I think that that has come through with the current um, policy of the Iranians towards the war in Ukraine. So far, um, at at the official level, Iran has not resolutely condemned the intervention. They've stressed diplomatic negotiation and has sought to facilitate that both through the Ukrainians and the Russians. But at the same time, Iran has supported Russia in the UN, um, especially with the removal of the human rights, um, Russia from the Human Rights Council, and has touted the rhetoric that the Russians have long um, stressed about NATO expansion and the dangers of Washington's unilateralism. So there's kind of this... It has played into, I think, some of the Iranian pre-existing synergies with Russia when it came to this embattlement with the West. But at the same time, Iran does face its own issues domestically with separatism. And so short of endorsing the kind of claims that Russia is making in terms of Ukrainian territorial integrity, Iran's likely going to continue supporting the political position, at least in the war. In terms of Iran-Ukraine relations, which haven't really been as um, robust as the Russia-Iran relationship, uh, Iran does have, uh, right at the moment, they do have a diplomatic mission still active in Kyiv. But the relationship has been um, somewhat um, affected quite um, adversely with the um, downing of the Ukrainian aircraft um, during the whole escalation over the Soleimani assassination. So Iran-Ukraine relations has already been kind of uh, damaged by this, but still with the the reports of uh, potential arms uh, facilitation uh, to the Russians, uh, the Iranians did deny that and, and, and conveyed that to their Ukrainian counterparts. Uh, Just a quick follow up, Nicole, looking from the Russian perspective, what how much do you think Russia expected from Iran as far as their support for this invasion? What is the relationship sort of viewed from from the Russian perspective uh, when it comes to this position that Iran has taken, as you described? I, I don't think it's all that surprising if um, when Raisi went to Moscow in January this year, his speech to the Russian Duma pretty much articulated Russian talking points when it came to Ukraine and when it came to issues of NATO expansion. So I, I don't think Russia was all that surprised with Iranian kind of synergies in that sense. Um, what is significant, and I think it's a shift from 2014, is Iran's kind of um, institutional support for Russia. So during the original annexation of Crimea, Iran was notably absent 
absent during the vote on territorial integrity. Iran has either um, abstained or voted against any kind of general assembly resolution when it came to this. So I think Russia um, views this as kind of beneficial. There's been instances where Iran has previously supported Russia's position on the Kerch Strait crisis and on the, uh, the now defunct Minsk II process. So there is, uh, I think that this was quite expected from the Russian position. And, and I think that the, at least in terms of having a coalition of allies, Iran's quite significant in that sense. Thank you, Nicole. Let me go to Sina because um, I know that Iran nuclear negotiations are only one aspect of this issue, but it's the topic of the day here in Washington. It has been continuously. We know there's a stalemate as far as the negotiations uh, are concerned in Vienna. And then before this war, the interestingly, the Russian negotiator, the diplomat in Vienna, played a very key and instrumental role specifically because Iran and the U.S., the diplomats, negotiators were not meeting directly. So both the European Union and the E3, as well as the Russian negotiator, were playing a key role. And then that dynamic kind of changed when Russia invaded Ukraine. At some point, it created some bumps in the road. Russia was coming out with uh, with new requests, which then the side sorted that out. Uh, but the negotiations are still at a stalemate, uh, mainly between Tehran and Washington. But uh, Sina, talk about how this war has impacted the long-term process of the negotiations in Vienna and or whether, because there's also an argument that the war in Ukraine and sort of the top headlines that are about Russia's aggression may have created some political space for the Biden administration to actually do go ahead with the revival of the JCPOA. How do you see the shadow of this war and invasion um, on the nuclear negotiations with Iran, either in Vienna or also not the extension of that stalemate. Well, thank you, Nagar. Uh, thank you, Rachel and Mona, for uh, uh, for creating the event. Uh, I know that you know uh, we've been working on it for a while. Uh, but let me uh, uh, begin. The short answer is uh, the impact is not positive. Uh, and while absolutely there is uh, space for Iran and the U.S. to talk. Um, Iranians have simply refused, uh, and they continue to insist that you know the negotiations have to be conducted indirectly. But uh, let me explain this: that for Russia, as one Russian pundit recently commented, that uh, uh, in a sense uh, the dangers of an Iran with being in the Western camp is much higher than the dangers of a nuclear-armed Iran. And I'll, I'll explain uh, what I'm trying to say here. For Russia, um, an Iran uh, which is pro-Western, uh, which has good relations with the US and the EU, will not serve its interests. Within Iran, uh, there are two camps that uh, I'm going to discuss. The first camp, um, and uh, currently they are not uh, connected to the circles of power at, uh, somehow. They believe that uh, Russia is a declining power and it, uh, its invasion of Ukraine has failed. Um, it has been practically defeated in achieving its goals. Uh, recently being you know, the, the sinking of Moscow, I think it was a tremendous blow to, to Russia's prestige. Uh, but these circles um, are, as I said, are not connected to power. There's also another perspective, which, uh, and they are currently in power, uh, and they believe that either we don't want to resolve our issues with the United States, or we are fundamentally opposed or, or at odds with the West, that we can't resolve our problems with them. Um, meaning that there is absolutely no way that in the future we can uh, uh, resolve our issues with the U.S. EU is just a paper tiger uh, under, living under the shadow of the U.S., and we can't have good relations with them either if we wanted to. Naturally, uh, uh, you have China and Russia as the remaining great powers. So there's this Iranian version of, of pivot to Asia or look to the East as they like to call it. And why they officially say that, no, we want to balance our relations, but you see that they're increasingly 
uh, pro-East. And one of these people, which is now Iran's nuclear negotiator, uh, Ali Baghari Kani, he believes that, uh, and, and even uh, the foreign minister, Amir Abdullahian, they believe that uh, we are standing on the right side of history. Uh, China is on the rise. Uh, Russia is a great power. And somehow, by by uh, you know balancing toward East, we can uh, survive. Um, I know that even some of these people think that in terms of the uh, conflict in Ukraine, they believe that Russia, because of the sanctions, will have to rely on Iran to continue its relations with the West, meaning that Iran will somehow become a, a, a junior partner uh, to Russia, and this will um, really um, decrease the gap between the two countries. While they are friends, but I believe that they are not really allies. And, and this view holds that the current sanctions on Russia will make Russia dependent on Iran, as I said. So, uh, in the sh- and this will make, unfortunately, uh, make Iran's position less flexible and more intransigent, meaning that they believe that we already um, are exporting oil. Uh, we're, uh, future of relations with the West, West are not that positive. So let's create this block of sanctioned countries with Iran and Russia, with the political power of China. So in short, I don't think that uh, the conflict has a positive impact on the negotiations. Thank you, Sina. Um, Let me go to Alex. Uh, Alex, let me bring you in. You uh, study Iran's modern history, factional politics. Talk about how you see this war impacting Iran's foreign policy strategy as a whole um, and whether you think Tehran may recalibrate its move towards the East or its long-term foreign policy vision in light of the new global dynamics. Um, And then if you can also talk about specifically the regional policy, or I can ask you a follow-up question, but let's talk about how you think, think if at all, this uh, conflict has had an impact on Tehran's strategic uh, viewing of its um, uh, broader foreign policy. Thanks, Degar. Uh, good to be with everyone, and thanks to George Washington University for hosting us all. I look forward to our uh, time together. Uh, before I answer your question, uh, let me just respond, or not respond, but but say um, a word or two about you know the, the sort of Iranian reaction to what happened uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I would go as far as say um, that. M- all Iranians, and certainly the ones that matter in the political system, uh, agree uh, that what happened in February 2022 in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in fact no different than Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran in 1980. It's exactly the same logic was used. Saddam Hussein invaded Iran saying the province of Khuzestan is not Iranian land, it's Arab land. And it's exactly the same logic that Vladimir Putin is used in his invasion of, of Ukraine. Now, there's a difference, uh, and this is uh, to to something that Sina's already uh, started, uh, you know, uh, talking about, which is um, whether you speak this truth openly or not depends which faction you kind of belong to. Um, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, which uh, the Supreme Leader of Iraq, the one voice that matters. I mean. If those of you out there who are interested in this topic and you want to follow the statements of individuals, uh, please don't follow what Foreign Minister Hussein Abdullahian, others have to say. Follow really what uh, the Supreme Leader, who doesn't say much about this publicly, but sometimes he hints at it. Follow him. His thinking on Russia is the most important. And follow the leadership in the Revolutionary Guard, say, on Russia. And there's a reason why these two centers of power are the most important, because 
For them, Russia increasingly is not about a foreign policy issue. It's about their political survival at home. They don't have many friends. They see what Russia has done. As I said, the logic is no different than Saddam's logic in invading Iran. They get that. Um, they are reluctant to support Russia, and I believe they are reluctant, um, but they have nowhere to turn as far as they're concerned. The hardline faction, unlike the previous administration of Hassan Rouhani and the likes of Javad Zarif, and I don't want to make a big deal in terms of their differences, but there were differences between the two administrations. And the ones who have all the levers of power in Tehran today, from Ibrahim Raisi in the presidential palace to the Supreme Leader's office to the top brass in the Revolutionary Guards, they are unanimous in agreeing that doesn't matter what Russia does, we have no option but to stay with the Russians because, frankly, and I don't know, this is uh, the, the proverb, I'm sure everyone's heard it, one bird in hand is better than two birds in the bush, right? We know what we have with the Russians. It's a complicated re- relationship, to Nicole's point, but at least we have a relationship. What about the Americans? What about the Europeans? There, it's a, it's basically a Hail Mary situation. You can hope for something good to come out of it, but you have no idea uh, if, if diplomacy will work and deliver with the Americans and the Europeans. So why even try? Why gamble? Why risk upsetting the Russians? And that's, I think, the position of the Iranians. They do it kind of holding their nose. Um, I mean, they should. I mean, listen, people should remember, Iran lost... 256,000 souls in an eight-year war with Saddam Hussein, where he invaded. I don't know how long the war in Ukraine is going to continue, but it's the same logic. So the Iranians should be the first one, the loudest one, certainly in the Middle East, to come out and condemn what the Russians have done. The reason why they don't do it is pure factional politics in Tehran. They believe if they upset the Russians, then the Russians could... Uh, essentially uh, become a spoiler in a very sensitive political moment in Tehran where Ayatollah Khamenei is 83 years old. There's a succession process that's already underway. And the hardline camp want to keep a steady boat in the sake of, for the sake of survival of their power, grip on power, uh, and to sort of do anything other than indu- what they have done, which is to sort of not condemn the Russians, um, would have been too much for them. So they haven't. That's why they, they've kept the position. I, I, I spoke more than I should have done. So let me stop here and have your follow-up question, Nagar. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, you, you did want to talk about the region. But let me give you a second to uh, to sort of uh, ask uh, the question. So Alex, you very well explained the situation up until now, but do you see Tehran... Um, any recalibrating of this foreign policy position that they've had until now, like you said, they're they're put in a tough position. And I'm going to follow up with the panel about other uh, countries in their region. But do you see any change happening? It doesn't sound like you do. Look, if Iran, if the Islamic Republic was a logical entity, and a lot of people I'm sure are going to hate me for saying this or certainly disagree with what I just said, but I don't consider the Islamic Republic an entity that puts Iranian national interests first. And you can say that's true for a lot of countries out there, but now I'm speaking about Iran. So I think if they were thinking about Iranian national interests, this would have been a perfect opportunity for the Islamic Republic not to be Uh, looking for excuses to excuse Russia's actions in in Ukraine. I mean, if you listen to people like Raisi, and if you look at Iranian media, what are they saying? This is all NATO's fault. This is all NATO's fault. If it's it's an American conspiracy, I mean, they're looking for excuses uh, to excuse something that, frankly, you can't excuse away, an invasion of a country by a larger neighbor. uh, And, you know, So it's a golden opportunity if Iran wanted it to be a moment where it could say it doesn't have to even uh, attack the Russian position, uh, but to condemn it. And we're going to get into the segment in a minute, but that's basically what everybody else in the Middle East has done. It doesn't have to be assertively anti-Russian, but it doesn't have to make up excuses for the Russians, which is exactly what the Iranians are doing. But as I said, the, the, the reason is... And again, this is, uh, I think Sina mentioned this, this idea of look east, the West is declining, uh, the future is China, Russia, and Iran has really no option but to put its eggs in those baskets because that's the only way uh, it can hope to thrive on the international international stage. And to some extent, that is true. I mean, Russia and China have provided protection for Iran uh, while the United States has imposed the maximum pressure campaign. Nobody can deny that. 
But I think there, there is a way uh, other than, you know, excusing Russian action here, because um, Iranians have suffered from actions like what Putin has taken against Ukraine. And it could happen again to, to Iran as, a, as an old imp- imperial state, as a country that's multi-ethnic. Imagine when others start looking for excuses to go out and question the sovereignty of Iran, the borders of Iran. This could be a monster that will be knocking on Iran's own door. It's a long-term problem. And I don't know if officials in Tehran think about it in those long terms, but it would have been wise if they did. Thank you, Alex. Um, just your point, we we heard sort of a secondhand um, uh, condemnation, although not so strong, from the Iranian foreign minister, Amir Abdullahian, when he was on his way to Moscow. In fact, we heard it from the Ukrainian foreign minister. Basically, he tweeted that grateful to uh, Abdullahian for refuting allegations and for standing against Russia's war on Ukraine and supporting a diplomatic solution, again, going back to what Nicole was discussing. But let me now pose some questions to all of you uh, in the panel and not in any specific order. Feel free to come in, but um, Nicole, Sina, Alex, um, this is sort of an extension of what we were talking about. Well, how do you see or what do you see behind, as far as reasoning, the reluctance of other countries, specifically U.S. allies and partners in the region, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, their reluctance in condemning the war and sort of joining the West or at least their close ally, the U.S., in these um efforts against Russia. We haven't seen those kind of strong statements coming from uh, any of these major powers across the region. How do you see um, these, uh, the reluctance of these countries? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I I think that the reluctance has to do with, I mean, it's simply, I, I don't think that these countries want to be embroiled into a broader conflict with the West and Russia. Um, Ukraine is not, you know, an immediate security threat. It's not an immediate issue for a lot of these countries. Also, Russia has fairly beneficial relations with a lot of um, Middle Eastern countries, especially since the Syrian civil war, and Russia still is an important actor in the region. And, you know, Assad visiting the UAE right after, right during the war. I mean, th- there's a lot of changes that actually were precipitated from the Russian intervention in Syria, and Russia still has relations with the region. So I think, I mean, it, it depends on how, how strongly like you would um, find this as a condemnation, but I, I, I do think that there is um, more reticence just in, in terms of being embroiled in, in, the, in the conflict with the West and Russia. Yeah, I'll just add to it that um, I think Middle Eastern powers or countries uh, uh, like, I mean, quite similar to Iran, they think that the U.S. is somehow a declining power or is trying to get out of the Middle East and and, and pivot to Asia to counter China. And then, well, what are the options that we have? I mean, we want to have good relations with with the Russians, too. Um, I mean, defense contracts. And and usually uh, uh, my understanding is that Russians provide better deals uh, uh, to uh, these countries than the United States. And Russia, I don't I'm like similar to Chinese. I, I don't think that uh, uh, Russia is concerned with human rights in uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia or some of the U.S. allies that um um, have a, a not a clean record of on, on human rights. So I think that's one issue. And um, I also think that they've seen that uh, the U.S. or the West has some sort of a double standard when it comes to certain things like such as sovereignty. So uh, they believe that, well, Russia is here. They don't uh, bother us with human rights. So let's not just um, um, you know, create tensions between them. So just by remaining silent, there's, I believe, you know, they're tacitly supporting uh, what's happening um, in Ukraine. Uh, Nagar, look, I, I agree with everything that was just said um, by both Nicole and, and Sina. I, I actually tweeted out earlier this morning a good piece by Edward Luce in the Financial Times. And Edward was making the case that, you know, uh, to Sina's point about double standards, that when you talk about the liberal international order, there needs to be consistency in implementing that. And the United States has been, at least from the perspective of Middle Eastern states, and I think a lot of states in the so-called global South, in seeing a bit of a, um, 
lack of consensus, consistency that why are you so upset about, um, you know, what happened in Ukraine when you yourself, this is at least a charge leveled against the United States, have, um, you know, been selected in, in when it comes to the application or the you know, respectable rule of law. So there's definitely that. But I think, you know, more sort of... Um, uh, if you will, uh, sort of narrower set of concerns that they have is the fact that in the case of the Biden administration's relations with some of the key allies or uh, partners in the Middle East, I mean, um, to my knowledge, there's still no American ambassador right now in, in Abu Dhabi. And, you know, how long has the Biden administration been, been in place? Relations we all know between Biden administration and the Saudis uh, is is as bad as it has been in, in you know, uh, recent uh, decades, probably. So there is a relationship or lack of trust uh, when it comes to uh, to the Gulf states, certainly. I think the Turks uh, have their own very uh, complicated relationship with the Russians. They're a major trading partner of one another's rivals in the Syrian theater. Um, I think the Israelis, we've seen how much of a struggle it's been for them to balance their interests, because frankly, Israel would be much worse positioned in terms of its security interests if the Russians weren't cooperating with them over the skies of Syria, because the Russians have played a very positive role from Israel's perspective. So you can see when it comes to individual states, uh, the Russians uh, have something to offer most of them. It's not going to necessarily replace the United States as that biggest of powers in the region. I think it's very premature to talk about the United States leaving the region, as some people have speculated. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, since Russia's invasion in, in of uh, invasion or arrival on the scene in Syria in 2014, the Russians have proven to Middle Eastern states that they are a player to be reckoned with. And I think that's another key that makes them not want to necessarily confront the Russians, because frankly, um, you know, uh, they feel that this isn't about who, who's right and who's wrong. It's about basic national interest. And that's how most of the regions really uh, has, have been playing their cards. Uh, thanks, Alex. So let me uh, follow up on that question again to all three of you um, this way on whether you think there is a reconfiguration of alliances uh, happening in the Middle East, as we discussed, uh, U.S. versus Russia or the West uh, versus the East camp. And also, if you see this conflict or any potential reconfiguration uh, having an impact on Russia's influence and presence and foreign policy towards the region, the, the broader Middle East? Um, oh, this question is again for all three of you, so feel free to come in. I, I can go first on this one. Um, I don't see any reconfiguration of, of the alliance system. I just think that uh, uh, Iran and the Arab countries of the Persian Gulf, you know, all these Middle Eastern countries, uh, they're hedging their bets. Um, um, maybe uh, less Iran, and more uh, uh, the Arab countries that, well, they want to have good relations uh, with the West, uh, the economic benefits of, of dealing with the West, but they also see, uh, as, as, as Alex and Nicole were both pointing out, that uh, Russia is a near power uh, and has no interest in what they do domestically. So uh, uh, at any time that they want, they can switch sides, use uh, the benefits of both sides. Uh, Saudi Arabia has cooperated. I mean, it buys weapon systems from the U.S., as Donald Trump put it, the, the, the most beautiful military equipment. But it also has used Russia and China to bolster its defenses. Uh, uh, the Chinese helped them uh, uh, create or, or, or enhance their indigenous missile program to counter Iran. So um, they all want to hedge their bets in the future in case the U.S. did actually leave the Middle East. They have some um, uh, major power uh, with good relations. Now, in terms of Iran, as I said, uh, it is in the interests of Russia uh, that Iran remains um, hostile to the West. Um, and that, I mean, you can see examples of this in the post-JCPOA, the audio leak that, uh, leak that we had from Foreign Minister Zarif in last April last April, that Russians were did pretty much anything they could to derail the negotiations. So, uh, um, and, and if I'm in Moscow, I don't want Tehran to be on the uh, Western camp either. So I think that, you know, for Arab countries, they want to hedge their bets. Iran is a separate issue. 
Thank you. Nicole, Alex, do you see any change uh, as far as alliances, any reconfiguration, and also um, Russia uh, shifting any of its policy towards the region and the broader Middle East? Nicole, do you want to go? And sh- yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I think that one thing might that might be impacted is arms sales. And I think that Russian military and, and the, 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 I guess the weapon systems haven't really been performing the way that it, the Russians have wanted it to be. So this could potentially impact um, the attractiveness of Russian um, exports to the region. Um I mean, Russia's tr- sought to reconfigure the alliance system in the region for, I mean, for the past few years with the Persian Gulf security concept that not many states have been taken up on because it kind of calls for the removal of foreign forces from the region. So Russia has sought to kind of uh, influence the region and, and, and position itself as a central actor. But in terms of Russian foreign policy and Russian foreign policy priorities right now, um, there's obviously this distraction with the war, though Russia's not really engaging um, earnestly in diplomatic negotiations, the Russian foreign ministry is pretty much directed towards the situation in Ukraine. So you might see a decline of interest or kind of outreach to the region from the Russian foreign ministry and from the Russian diplomatic side. If I could just uh, say a word or two about, you know, what, you know, in some cases, um, in the case of Iran, as I said, because of their uh, uh, politics in Tehran, they are willing to pay high price to keep the Russians happy. And that's basically what Iran has done since first Chechen war. I mean, the f- last time you could go back and see an Iranian challenge to Russian policies was the first Chechen war, right? When the Russians told the Iranians in no uncertain terms, you cut it out. And the Iranians did. There would be no flow of foreign fighters or any kind of support for the Chechen cause. And after that, the Islamic Republic, this defender of Muslim rights said nothing uh, about what's going on in Chechnya, basically. And I think that has been true, as I said, since the early 1990s. So they're paying a very high price to keep the Russians happy. Uh, And yet the best Iran can get out of uh, its relationship with Russia, uh, and some of it is actually worth uh, their time and effort. I mean, the Russians have protected them at the uh, IEA in Vienna provided a a diplomatic cover for them at the UN Security Council, as have the Chinese uh, increasingly in recent years. So there's that. But if you think in terms of practical material benefits that Iran and Russia can have with this Ukraine war now having become a a normal, uh, what are we hearing? We're hearing that Iran can provide expertise to uh, Russia to go around sanctions. So the Iranians have created an industry around sanction busting, and they're not offering their services as consultants to the Russians. So we know how you can sell your oil. We know how you can go around some of these sanctions and, and cover your tracks. Again, to me, that doesn't suggest that anybody's thinking big in terms of using what's going on in Ukraine as a moment for Iran to create a new foreign policy for itself, to put itself out or, or lessen its dependence and being beholden to Moscow and the international stage. It's an opportunity, and I think it already seems to me to be clear that they're missing this opportunity, and they're thinking small. And and by the way, you know, Iranian-Russian trade on a good year would be about $2 billion, right? $2 billion max. This is more than what they have been trading in recent years, but it's still pretty small amount. So Russia is not going to rescue the Iranian economy. Ayatollah Khamenei is not going to have a better night's sleep because... More money is coming in through the Russian channels and the Iranian economy improves and the Iranian people are less angry. That's not going to happen. That's the price they're willing to pay for not taking the opportunity to change course. Again, it would have been a golden opportunity for the Islamic Republic leaders to rethink their foreign policy. Uh, But this is not the first time they have failed to do so. And I suspect uh, it won't be the last either because they're ideologically committed to what it is they believe is, is the best foreign policy, which is sort of a mishmash of ideology and, and but certainly anti-American to its core, and that drives them forward. Thank you, Alex. Let me follow up on one point. Well, first of all, I encourage our audience to post, write your question in the chat box. I'm going to get to the Q&A uh, session with the audience soon. So if you have any questions or comments for our panelists, please do feel free to write them in the chat box and I'll read them very soon. But I have one last question for the panel, and this is following up on a point, Alex, that you brought up about the double standards uh, when it comes to, you know, the international rules-based order, which we hear very much from the Western camp, U.S., European allies these 
days um, and, and how specifically the global south is very much seeing uh, clearly seeing these double standards. I want to specifically talk about the issue of refugees, because that's also another area uh, when we're seeing the double standards. Uh, just a few years ago, we have uh, waves of refugees from fleeing the Syrian war. Uh, we've seen waves, multiple waves of refugees fleeing the war in Afghanistan just recently after the U.S. withdrawal fleeing the Taliban. Um, and uh, we also saw their treatment and the way they were uh, accepted or not in various countries in Europe and all the way here to North America. And then there's a stark difference between how refugees from the Ukraine war uh, are being welcomed and accepted to the point that I think just yesterday there was a report that Germany is actually um, evicting a number of Afghan refugees to make room for uh, the larger flood of refugees from Ukraine. How do you each see uh, these double standards when it comes to accepting refugees, uh, specifically from the wars in Middle East as opposed to Ukraine, and whether you think this is also going to have an impact uh, on the West and East uh, relationship with these countries in the Middle East, not necessarily the regional powers, but the war-torn uh, societies of the region. If I may very quickly, Nigar, just react to that. It's not an area that I cover, uh, but I mean, as just a casual observer, I can certainly point out that this is a phenomenon. I mean, if you read Middle Eastern media, if you read Persian, if you read Arabic, Turkish, and so on, this is something that is being debated in terms of the perceived uh, uh, difference in how uh, Ukrainian refugees have been treated by certain countries, particularly Poland and other East European countries versus other refugees. I think to some extent, you know, this is to be expected. This is about geography. This is about cultural, geographic, and other proximities. I mean, the fact that uh, Poland is a neighboring state to Ukraine, and there's a lot of common history there, shouldn't make us uh, be surprised that they treat Ukrainians differently than country, people that come from faraway lands. I mean, this is just to be expected. If, if you're in Iran, which countries have provided most of the refugees to Iran? I mean, the millions of refugees in Iran, they have over the last three, four decades have come from a few countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iraqi Kurds, and so on. Again, proximity is what often refugees don't jump in and have a business class seat and fly to it. They have to walk it. And when you walk it, you know, closest destination is where you can get to by, by foot, by car, so forth. So I think we 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 have to be careful not to make make it too much of a deal out of this. I mean, the, the, the story you just quoted, I read it too. It was from Press TV. Um, Iranian state-run media was, that's where I picked it up. I don't no, know. No, it was actually in Foreign Policy. I saw the link in Foreign okay. Policy magazine. Well, if that's what the Germans are doing, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 something that uh, obviously is going to just create more uh, suspicion, certainly in the global south in terms of treatment, because when it becomes one of ethnicity and race, uh, then you can't play the, the card of having the moral uh, high ground. I mean, the idea of the, if you have a liberal international order where you box people based on ethnicity and race and you want everybody to sort of rally around the flag when you ask them, it's not going to happen because people are going to obviously judge you based on what they are. And, and uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to make sure or, or suggest that we don't uh, make too much out of the treatment of the refugees as if this is you know, uh, a, a moment where Europe entirely failed. And people should remember that over, I believe, a million Syrian refugees uh, in the last five or six years have ended up in places like Germany. So um, uh, that's also important to, to keep in mind. Thank you, Alex. Nicole and Sina, do you want to weigh in? I know this was sort of out of the scope of our conversation, but because, Alex, uh, you brought up the double standards in the international rules-based order, I thought this was a little bit uh, related. And also, it's something that's very much on my mind. If you, too, Nicole or Sina, if you want to weigh in, uh, any comments, or I can also move on to the Q&A. Um, I'll just make a, 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 a very quick comment. Even the narrative matters here. Uh, in the media, uh, uh, you you know hear quite often that these are refugees, right? But then you also hear that in the aftermath of uh, of the Syrian conflict or the conflicts in the Middle East, there are somehow immigrants, right? I mean. There is a difference. I mean, you change one word and the, you have, you're, you're, you're inserting an entire different context, which would mean or, or would require 
different policy making decisions. So I think that uh, that matters. Or somehow, I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, so many people have seen this that you know uh, CNN or other Western media were somehow referring to these refugees as quote unquote civilized uh, people, which would mean that somehow other people uh, that are trying to get or flee uh, conflicts are not as civilized as these people. So I think that these, I mean, small things make a big difference. And uh, one last point, you can just compare the treatment of, 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 of Iran when it was subject to uh, the widespread uh, use of uh, uh, chemical weapons. Uh, for years, um, Iraq used chemical weapons on Iranian troops and cities, and you don't see major powers expressing concerns. However, when there was a report which was never confirmed, you see that the British Foreign Secretary, you see the, uh, the, the US government expressing concerns that Russia has used potentially use chemical weapons, and that would require a significant response from the U.S. So that's a double standard that I'm referring to. Thank you. Nicole, do you have any comments for this? I mean, I, I think it, it, there's quite evident double standards involved in this. And, and I'm saying this as someone who's both in like kind of Russian studies and Middle East studies, the contrast between the support for Ukraine amongst the academic community, for example, is, is pretty significant opposed to what, what was happening with Afghanistan. And just in terms of getting visas, for example, um, in August, it was incredibly difficult to get Afghans visas. Ukraine, it's much more easier. So there's, there's this different and also it's geographic issues. The Central Asian states close their borders to refugees Afghanistan. But when it comes to Ukraine, I think what I, I'm more in the public discourse, and especially in the West, is this, I guess, tendency to make the conflict fit with our cognitive priors and to make the conflict as a kind of a bigger issue with liberalism, et cetera. But I mean, and I think it kind of detracts from the, the real drivers of it and the fact that Russia is um, committing war crimes, the fact that Russia is committing these atrocities without contextualizing it within some kind of framework that we use to support our, our own views. And so um, that's just my issue with the current, I guess, portrayal of it. Thank you. Let me just wrap up by saying that the way the refugees are well treated is not a source of problem, but the comparison that people make or see with how previous waves of refugees were treated is uh, is what uh, causes the issue. Let me now move to our audience questions. I'll just, uh, Mona, if you agree, I'll just go one by one as I see them. Uh, and I see you also type the question. We have the first question from Saif Aldandashi. Uh, sorry if I'm butchering any of the names. Will Biden begin to take a more pragmatic approach in the Middle East rather than be adamant about his democratic liberalism policy to adjust to what has been happening in the Ukraine conflict? Or will he hold his ground? I'll just pose this to all three of you. Feel free um, to come in. Um, I'm not sure if I understood the question, but I um, 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 I think the Biden administration um, has its own uh, double standards. Um, uh, I mean, in the case of Iran, I believe that um, you do see that the the candidate Biden in 2020 repeatedly said that once you know he comes to office, the U.S. will return to JCPOA, and the decision was by the Trump administration was wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, once you know he you know, he won the elections. In in practice, you see the uh, the continuation, if you will, of the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Um, and I believe that he lost a golden opportunity when he had a chance, uh, partially his fault, partially not his, uh, to return the JCPOA. And that losing time uh, was detrimental uh, to uh, the nuclear talks, created the suspicion in Tehran that uh, the Biden administration is not genuine in his um, official policy declarations that they're interested in returning to the JCPOA. Uh, if I may, I mean, to Sina's point, Joe Biden would not be the first or the last candidate to promise something and then not deliver on it. I mean, that's just Absolutely. politics. So, uh, but to be honest uh, and, you know, fair, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, certainly the top leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, has never uh, ever since 1989, when he became supreme leader, again, since 1989, he has single-handedly had the ability to choose a different course vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And he hasn't. 
Now, I'm not saying the United States is uh, is not guilty at times of missing opportunities. Certainly, I think there have been moments where the U.S. could have acted differently towards Iran. But, you know, this is not a relationship of two equals. Uh, Iran has a lot more to gain by taking bigger steps towards the United States and asking the United States to take equal size steps towards Iran. And, you know, when the Iranians don't do that, they're hurting their own national interests. Uh, you know, there is nothing right now that China and Russia are, can do for Iran that the United States couldn't do for Iran in, in terms of Iranian national interests when it's, it's it, their state of their economy and so forth. So I think when we talk about, uh, you know, golden opportunities and who could have done what, um, I haven't, uh, and I cover Iran daily, I haven't heard uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei or the Revolutionary Guards mm-hmm. taking a moment saying, we want to pave the way perhaps for a different future. All they're asking for in these negotiations in Vienna is just a nuclear deal. They are satisfied just with a nuclear deal because they're happy just to be able to sell more oil and get the money freely back into Iranian banking accounts once the sanctions are lifted. That talks uh, that tells us they're interested in a tactical, narrow deal. There is no big vision in Tehran. There's no desire to sort of turn the page. Uh, and, you know, the Biden administration faces that. And Iran that just wants a small deal, but isn't really interested in a broader dialogue versus what Biden would be expected to pay in terms of political price in Washington by being perceived to be soft on Iran. I mean, here's a president who's got plenty on his plate already. And he's got the pandemic and all the rest of the economy to worry about. So the Iranians are not paying any attention to that. They're asking almost Biden of the impossible and they're not giving a helping hand in any way. And again, I I, I don't think, you know, it's a relationship equals. Iran would benefit a heck of a lot more uh, if there was some sort of a turning of the page and a restart, a reset, if you will. Uh, But as I said, I don't think Khamenei is interested in that. Thank you, Alex. We have about five more questions, so I ask uh, you to please be a little more brief in your answers. The first one is from Nicole Jackson. For Nicole, uh, she's asking uh, to hear your views on the impact of the war on post-Soviet Central Asia and repercussions for Russia and Central Asia on security relations, etc. You can also, uh, you all can see the questions in the chat box, but Nicole, this is for you. I'm sure I'll try to be brief with this. Um, I mean, economically, the Chinge and um, the Som are quite reliant on the ruble. So there's economic reverberations within Central Asia. Um, however, a lot of the Central Asian countries, um, in particular Uzbekistan, have been more um, concerned about actually supporting uh, Russian intervention. And you even see that from Kazakhstan, one of Russia's traditional allies. When it comes to um, the SCO, I, I think the previous conflicts seem like a, a good indication that you're not going to see an SCO statement saying that they support the war. Um, they would, you know, this goes against the three evils. And um, you know, I don't think that they're going to support Russia's territorial claims. But in terms of security relations, um, the CSTO obviously showed that this is not going to be a multilateral effort or a multilateral intervention. Uh, Russia still has concerns. Um, with the, the security issues, especially with Tajikistan. So, um, I mean, I think that there is going to be a variable impact, but it, um, in terms of Russian influence, that's uh, yet to be seen, I think. Thanks, Nicole. I have a question. I'll pose this to the panel if you want to quickly comment. If uh, from Henry Breer asking if you see any impact the French election has on the overall situation or not. Um, um, I would make the case, and I'm not an expert on on French foreign policy, but I would say that the rise of of populists uh, who uh, like to undermine NATO and want to have better relations with uh, Russia could perhaps serve Iran's interest. Um, I I think that Islamic Republic has uh, historically uh, taken advantage of um, a, a divided Europe or a divided, you know, EU and the United States. Um, so uh, that is what I think. Um, and while um, the current president, uh, Macron, has been in support of JCPOA, I think overall um, they would take, as I said, they would take advantage of, of a rift within the EU or Washington and uh, the European uh, Union. Yeah, I mean, if I could very quickly add to that, you know, what happened between 2018 and, uh, you know, the Biden administration coming to power was the Europeans, 
you could make the argument helped save what was left of JCPOA. But what's going on with Ukraine and Europe and the United States seeing eye to eye in terms of the bigger international security issues means that if there is no nuclear deal, the Europeans and Americans are going to go back to cooperation much more closely than they did between 2018 and 21. So you can expect the US and Europe to move much more closely together. That's something the Iranians should anticipate in case there is no nuclear deal out of Vienna. Great. Another question from Jonah Schulhofer-Wall. Again, sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name. Does Russia's embroilment in the war in Ukraine affect Russian support for Assad in Syria and his medium-term or long-term prospects for survival in power in Syria? This was briefly mentioned, uh, but if any of the three of you want to weigh in about uh, this question. I mean, there's still the conflict going on in Idlib, which seems like that's going to last for quite a while. Um, and Ru- I mean, Russian military involvement in Syria is really limited to the Aeros- Aerospace Defense Forces or the VKS, and they haven't been as active um, in the war in Ukraine. So um, I-, I don't think that that's going to be a big determinant. Um, Russia has pretty much a light um, military presence. And a quick follow up on that. Sirius Assad, he is now seen to be the one who will survive. And you see that in terms of Arab League's discussion of readmission in, you know, recent overture, I mean, recent visit to UAE and so on. So the region as a whole expects Assad to stay. And I think we sort of beyond the military conflict phase at this point, which is about political rehabilitation of Bashar al-Assad. Thank you. Uh, let me now go to a question from Lucia Winkler. Winkler. Uh, regarding the evidence of foreign fighters from the Middle East in Ukraine, how will this development affect the region's relationship with Russia? Anyone want to take that? Yeah, um, I think the use of mercenaries and, and the increasing use of mercenaries, I think, is kind of fading the uh, the taboo uh, on of using mercenaries or foreign troops in the region. So I believe that what the impact is that you'll you'll see more and more of countries in the region and Iranians uh, have used this before and now Russians are doing this and and I believe uh, that you, you you'll see more and more countries using mercenaries re- recruited troops to fight on their behalf uh, in foreign conflicts and which is safe because you know again if somebody uh, gets killed in action it's a fo- it's a foreign national you don't have anyone from your own people uh, dying on the battlefield. So I think it's, it will have an impact. And I think it's a fantastic question. Um, we have a final question. We have a couple of comments. I'll let the audience read them, but we have one final question from our host, Mona Atia. Um, there has been some concern about the role Russia has been playing in the region and specifically that Russia tested much of the military interventions in Ukraine in Syria. In what ways do you think this is impacting the response of other Middle Eastern nations to the conflict for all three of you? Um, I mean, I can, in terms of, I'm I'm not too sure about the regional dimension when it comes to the impact of Ukraine and Syria uh, for Russian foreign policy, but there's definitely parallels between the Syrian civil war and the current war in Ukraine. Um, A lot of it actually just goes back to the Russian messaging and this kind of like deniable aspects of uh, Russia's campaign. Um, But it is a fundamentally different intervention. And for Russia, Ukraine signifies something very different than Syria did. Um, Syria, obviously, Russia has said that they were invited by invitation from Assad. But with Ukraine, it's just this presumption of limited sovereignty that Russia has kind of considered Ukraine as not fully sovereign. And this has led to territorial incursions in Georgia and previous incursions in, in Crimea. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, it's difficult to kind of equate the two interventions, but um, and, and Russia's um, kind of logic militarily has been a, a bit divergent as well. Nagar, I, I know we have only about a minute left. Very quickly, 20 seconds. I think the idea that the Russian military style of operating Ukraine is going to bolster the use of the proxy model is terrible news for the Middle East because the Middle East has been suffering from the proxy model. And I know some countries in the region find it to be convenient. It's cheap. Um, You know, we've seen how actors have acted in Syria. You bring others to do your fight and you pay them, you know, low sums of money, $500 to $1,500 month salary, Kalashnikovs, pickup trucks, and you have yourself a bit of influence on the ground. It works well in the sort of uh, shadow uh, war of the shadows and 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 um, you know the sort of 
hit and run operations that countries in the region have in the last 10 years engaged in against each other. But it's a terrible recipe for the way forward where countries, at least that's what the rhetoric from the leaders in the region is about. You know, let's turn the page. Let's put the last 10 years post-Arab Spring aside. Let's look for cooperation. If that's what you want to do, you certainly don't want to build up on the proxy model as a way of, of, of scoring geopolitical points. In fact, you want to put that away and look for ways to for states to, um, among themselves, come to compromises and de-escalate across the board. That ought to be the, the way they would uh, go forward. Forward. Thank you very much to all three of you. We also have two comments from uh, uh, J.D. Dakak and Amal Cavender. I'm sorry, there's not enough time to read the comments, but thanks to everyone who tuned in, to our panelists, Nicole Gurievsky, Sina Azodi, Alex Vatanha, and a very a special thank you to our hosts, Mona Atia, Rachel Schaefer, and the George Washington University who hosted this event. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation and have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, Nagar. Thank you, everyone. That was a panel discussion hosted by George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies. And thank you for tuning into the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review or a comment. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. And please consider supporting our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. You can make a monthly donation to the Iran podcast to help our work continue. Their own podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow. Our theme music is by 127 Band and our logo art is by Minaj Afari. Until next time, goodbye.